You are listening to Change Agents, conversations with human rights and social justice advocates on WERU-FM. I am Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Emma Wynn-Hill. She works as a healthcare therapist who work working with adolescents. Much of her work is addressing the issues that young lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and binary people have. We will discuss the issues and concerns that LGBTQ and non-binary adolescents experience and what therapists can do. Emma, I think a good place to start, um, and I know this is probably not the easiest thing to do, is to try to come up with somewhat of a definition for all those words that I just did to make sure that everybody has at least some grounding. All right. So um, we call it the alphabet soup, LGBTQIA+++. Um, So I think people are generally most uh, familiar with the L and the G and the B, so lesbian, <laughs> lesbian, gay, bisexual. Um, uh, T is for transgender. Uh, I is intersex. A is asexual. Um, Q, oh, Q, <laughs> I forget some of them. Q, um, depending on who you talk to, queer or questioning, I think the general consensus is queer is what that means. Um, and I think queer is a pretty important word to, to talk about a little bit because it's one that, um, is, uh, you know, some people, even in the, the LGBTQIA plus community, um, uh, kind of question its validity, but basically, um, you know, in my understanding and my personal Uh, feelings. It's that, you know, there's just a questioning of um, gender, of sexuality, of um, there's an understanding that those things aren't um, static and they are, there's a fluidity, right? So um, queerness really means, you know, under this umbrella of Straightness is not the only thing. <laughs> um, cisgender people are not the only people. Um, that's kind of where queerness in my head lies in there. Um, I, so I think one one important thing to mention about this is that all of these terms mean what they mean to the individuals that are using them. So. Um, For instance, uh, somebody who is a cisgender um, woman who identifies as a lesbian might, that might only mean to them, uh, I love other cisgender women. Um, And for some people, it could mean, you know, I love trans women or I love anybody. It really doesn't matter. so I, I I think what's what's interesting is that um, the the word queer also has a a meaning different sets of meanings for people who are not um, in the, the whole range of LGBT 
uh, queue and and onward. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a word we've reclaimed for sure, and very uh, gleefully so, I would say. <laughs> what's been interesting to me is um, <clears throat> much of my work has has and continues to be in schools trying to reduce bias, prejudice, harassment, and violence on a, a range of issues. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think the reclaiming of the word queer has been by far the most successful of taking something that was being used by a, as a very, very much as a negative uh, word. Um, it's, it really is, it, it stands almost alone for me as, um, as being successful about that. Um, so, Emma, when did you know that you wanted to help people? Um, <laughs> uh, was, was it when you were in your teens? Was it younger than that? You know, I think that's a... That's a really interesting question because I think I've I've gone through um, lots of periods of times when you know what that means to me kind of has shifted. Like what supporting people being in that kind of support role has meant. Um, but I think ultimately I kind of track it back to being um, the child of somebody who did a lot of hospice care. So when I was young, I was around uh, my my mom volunteered as a hospice worker. So I was around a lot of people who were in the process of dying. And um, I think I kind of recognized how, you know, what an honor that is to be around people when they're in this really, um, not, not vulnerable, but just this, this state of being that we don't get to see other people in very often, you know. And um, how, how old were you when you first started um, going with your mother? I honestly don't remember a, a time when I didn't as a young person. We, I grew up, um, you know, we were poor. My mom worked a whole bunch of different jobs. So, um, and I was homeschooled. So I was often with her doing all these different jobs. So uh, I was kind of always along for the ride. Um, I learned how to count by counting lobsters into the the um, boxes that my mom was shipping them off in from the docks to the restaurants that she sold to. So. Um, well, I had one somewhat similar example of, um, I don't know why, I don't think I was able to be in school. And um, my mother, who was a social worker, uh, took me to a... Um, to, to wait outside and uh, sh she smoked and and I decided at a very young age gee it might be a really good idea to smoke I didn't get anything other than than a tremendous cough and and a uh, and I never smoked afterwards so um, good you got that out of the way early on though that's you know? right um and uh when you sort of trace going through um, middle and high school and college, were you were you engaging in activities that were trying to help people? 
Yeah. So I, I was very involved in big brothers, big sisters when I was in junior high and high school. I think I remember correctly. I think I might've been, I was one of like two or three people. And again, I, I went to a very small school, but um, there were just a few of us who did this. And I remember for some reason, I got the distinction of being like the the student coordinator of Big Brothers Big Sisters, and I thought it was the fanciest thing that had ever happened. And <laughs> so I remember that feeling of like, wow, I'm doing some something that feels good, and um, it feels like it's doing something that's beneficial, and and getting a little bit of responsibility. It was a really great feeling. Um, and then you know, I had no idea what social work was. I had no idea what, um, what I wanted to do with myself. I think at that point I wanted to be a journalist, maybe I can't even remember. Um, but I ended up, um, I ended up working in, um, group homes with adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities. I think I started that at what age? I think I was um, maybe 20. Um, I had very briefly gone to college for, you know, nothing that had to do with academics and then dropped out pretty quickly because it was clear that I wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't excelling at that point. Um, so I moved to Portland and um, ended up working in group homes. And again, kind of had that same feeling of, wow, what an honor to um, be in this position of knowing the people I was supporting so well. Um, And, you know, in very intimate ways often and being able to be that support person. Um, And in that same in that same breath, kind of realizing, wow, this system is really not built for the people who are um, the people who are relying on it, or the people who are working in it as well. You know, I, I it's it's been very interesting uh, for me um, <clears throat> thinking through all of the people who I've interviewed on this show that the vast majority of them. Uh, uh, knew in some way that, that that this is what they wanted to do, and at uh, at young ages, um, you know, um, some at age five, and a lot in their <clears throat> elementary and middle school. Um, mm. uh, so, at, at some point, uh, you made a decision to become a social worker. Am I correct? And yeah. um, and uh, did you did you know what you wanted to be as a uh, social worker? No, no. I really I was working in group homes for a very long time for on and off for seven years, six or seven years. And um, so most, you know, a, a lot of my twenties, the majority of my twenties, and um, I kind of got to a point where I realized, you know, these the people that I'm 
supporting are are really having a hard time, right? They're not getting the support that they need. They don't have access to services. And I I think the icing on the cake was taking um, one of the people that I worked for to a therapy session for a psychotherapy session. And this is someone who I, you know, I was with him about 50 hours a week. You know, I was with him a lot. I knew him very well. I, um, we had talked about, you know, his past and trauma and all of these things, very capable. He was very capable of talking about all those things. And, um, you know, we go to this therapy session and the therapist was just talking to him like, uh, like he was a three-year-old. And I remember the entirety of this session was, uh, the therapist saying, when you get angry, you can scream into a pillow. And then, proceeding to turn around and write their notes while the two of us were sitting there waiting. And I remember just thinking, this is ridiculous. This is not, um, this is not fair that this person so, was. So I'm, I'm just wondering if maybe um, your reaction also was I could do this better. <laughs> well, it was, it was, I am already doing this, yes. <laughs> right. So, I'm already having these conversations. So um, when did you, go to, to get social work and, and where was, where was it? Okay. So I went to, um, I was living in Portland at the time. So I ended up going to USM. Um, I think I was 27 when I finally went to undergrad. Um, and I went into social work because at, at that time I wasn't actually interested in being a therapist. I wanted to do the bigger picture advocacy kind of stuff. Again, because I was seeing, wow, this system is, is not benefiting the people it should be benefiting. Um, so I went, I did my undergrad there. Um, and while I was there, I started doing more, um, LGBTQ plus advocacy kind of work. And can we just stop there for a sec? Um, you, you had a particular interest in focusing on LGBTQ issues? Yes. So as I, I'm a queer person, I'm a non-binary person. Um, and, you know, I, I think I had started sort of leaning into that more and recognizing the ways that that had affected my life. Um, and I also just really um, thriving in those identities for the first time. I had queer community. I had people around me who, um, I could talk to not only without reservation, but without having to explain myself or without having to, um, you know, be a dictionary of (laughs) what do these things mean that you're saying to me? I, I could be myself. Um, so, so yeah, it had kind of come together for me that, okay, I'm studying social work and um, I was volunteering at this amazing organization in Portland called Portland Outright that is a youth-driven um, advocacy group. They're absolutely incredible. Um, so I was doing that. I had gotten this grant while still an undergrad to... Um, 
to interview uh, trans adults over the age of 60 about their access to healthcare. So I was starting to get involved with elders more, being able to talk to them about their experiences, which was just, again, what an honor. Um, and I was working with Professor Wendy Chapkis on a... Um, who, who I know somewhat. She was, I, I was at USM um, in, in that building uh, for a few years. Um, the fourth. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she's, she is a great person and a great teacher as well. Um, uh, you are listening to Change Agents, <clears throat> Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERUFM. I'm Steve, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Emma Wynn Hill, uh, who is a social worker um, and works with adolescents uh, and also with adolescents who are uh, LGBTQ, uh, non-binary, and other. Um, and we are going to be discussing what are the issues and concerns for uh, LGBTQ non-binary adolescents um, as they uh, move through that part of part of their life. Uh, so maybe we can just start and tell uh, just where you're working and uh, and. Uh, and who are you working with? How, uh, in terms of uh, whether they are LGBTQ, non-binary, or, or others? Sure. Yeah, so I work for um, United Cerebral Palsy of Maine, which at this point is a misnomer because we we provide services for everybody, not just people with cerebral palsy. Um, I work in our Waterville office, which is actually a newer office. It, we just opened it in June when I got there. Um, so primarily I work with LGBTQ, well, primarily queer and trans um, youth. So I would say my average my average client is between the ages of 12 and 16. Um, and I also uh, work with a lot of, or some adults with intellectual disabilities. Um, so those are kind of the two demographics that I spend the most time with. I, I think we will be focusing on the first, yeah. um, uh, the 12 to 16 year old um, uh, young people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, can can you describe the the kind of mental health issues that you see that can be um, uh, be, be really harmful <laughs> to your to your clients? Okay. Just sort of the, the range of issues. Yeah, it is. It's vast. It's vast, unfortunately. Um, So 
I would say that the majority of the young people that I see are dealing with pretty significant anxiety, um, depression as well. Um, I would say though that a lot of it is trauma-based. Um, so where, where I'm, I'm working with people who have these diagnoses, however, it's often very clear that it's coming from a place of, um, you know, the anxiety that is, that comes from not being in a safe place. Um, whether that's home or school or just walk into the grocery store. The, uh, um, the way you've just described that is um, it's, it's omnipresent. Um, mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, and, and I've seen, I've seen s- similar things in, in other groups that are um, excluded. Um, students of color as well, where you simply, you can't get away from the degradation and uh, and ugly words um, um, and also the fear of violence. Well, absolutely. And, and, you know, there's a lot of intersection as well, you know, for queer and trans kids of color, all of these um the statistics that we see about suicidality and homelessness and all of these things, those go through the roof. So um, as it is with, you know, across race, across class, across, you know, anything, um, LGBTQ youth are four times as likely to attempt suicide as non-LGBTQ folks. Can you... Just say that again. I think it, it was clear. I just want to make yeah. sure everybody heard that. Can you say that again? Yeah. LGBTQ youth are four times as likely to attempt suicide. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and in adults, um, in, in many studies, 40% of adult LGBTQ folks have like report having attempted suicide. Um, it's really sad and disturbing. Um, I, I, I've spent uh, much of the past uh, 30 years work, uh, doing work in schools, um, trying to reduce bias, prejudice, harassment, and, and violence, physical violence. Uh, what what I've and I often I always start by get, getting people to come in and have focus groups in particular um, what their identity is. The level of physical violence seems to have changed dramatically since uh, thirty years ago. Um, and I think that leads some people to, to thinking everything's just fine. Uh, mm. But the continuing degradation and risk of, of violence, even if it's not um, life-threatening violence, uh, seems like it, it still takes a, would take a huge toll. 
Absolutely. I mean, when we look at any of the statistics about homelessness, about access to healthcare, about um, medical outcomes, all of these things, um, the numbers for LGBTQ folks, especially LGBTQ folks of color, uh, go way up. So, um, for instance, uh, I was looking up some statistics before we talked today just to make sure I had my numbers correct. <laughs> um, so, one recent study found that 40% of youth. Uh, who are currently experiencing homelessness identify as LGBTQ. So 40% of youth in those systems or, you know, experiencing youth or experiencing homelessness outside of the shelter system, 40%. And, and that is extraordinarily high. And, and, in that same study, you know, 7% was the percentage that was given to general population LGBTQ folks. So, so if we make up 7% of the population, but 40% of the folks experiencing youth homelessness, that is a pretty dramatic uh, visual of, of what people are up against. Yeah. Um a really disturbing visual. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm interested in what your um, your twelve to sixteen year old um, clients t- t- tell you about uh, what happens in schools or what happens in homes and uh, how uh, are are there trends. In that, yes, absolutely. Um, so I want to say, first off, I think it's really important to to kind of explain the severity of of the the mental health that I'm seeing because I think when we hear things like anxiety, we kind of think, oh, that person um, gets nervous in crowds or something like that. But when I say I'm working with kids who are dealing with anxiety, um, that 85 to 90% of the time um, is marked by severe suicidality. So these are kids who are um, kind of often vacillate between active and passive suicidal thought, Um, often also dealing with self-harm, which does not always indicate suicidality, but I think it's of note. Um, so the severity of what uh, what they're dealing with in a day to day in their day to day lives, just in terms of anxiety, is is through. And, and can can we just go through, let's say, you know, an average client of yours? Um, uh, is it? My guess is that there are some homes which are supportive, and there maybe maybe more than aren't. Um, uh, what's happening at home? What's happening at at school? What's happening anywhere else? 
Yeah. So unfortunately, it's not that most of the homes are supportive. Um, often, I would say, again, 85 to 90% of the time, um, the youth that I'm seeing are living in homes where, you know, maybe the parents will say, okay, that's fine. You can use whatever pronouns you want. You can use whatever name you want, but I'm not going to do that here. Um, one thing I hear all of the time is, yeah, I know my kid, um, thinks that they are trans, uh, but she'll always be my little girl or something like that, you know? And I think parents don't understand what that means when, when at home, you can't trust the people who are supposed to be caring for you to recognize and respect the very, very basic parts of yourself, name, pronouns, right? These things that we hear all day, every day. The number of times we hear the pronouns that people are using for us and the names that people are using for us. So if at home, we can't trust the people who are taking care of us to recognize those things, why would they trust them with anything else, right? Why would they trust them with um, all of the stress of just being a middle schooler, right? Or just being a high schooler. So I think um, often families will, will think they're being accepting or will say they're being accepting, but without doing that work of, okay, what does it actually mean for me to be fighting for my kid, right? What does it mean for me to be um, taking care of this child. And, and you think that's really at uh, five to 10% from what you see with parents. Do I think. It, uh, I, I think you said before that, that um, you were using, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the number that was um, of parents who are n- not supporting their kids. And so. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and what is it about the that smaller number, the five or ten percent, who are getting it right? Where, where does that come from? Um, that's a great question. I think but, it comes from. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to just have you wait on that answer and let people <laughs> know um, what we are talking about. And um, and you are listening to Change Agents Conversations with Human Rights and Social Justice Advocates on WERUFM. I'm Steve Wester, the host of Change Agents. My guest today is Emma Winhill, a social worker uh, who focuses significantly on issues affecting um, LGBTQ and uh, non-binary people. Uh, um, We are discussing and the concerns and and soon to be talking about how we overcome those concerns. But I'm just uh, coming back to the question I asked you, what is, uh, what allows um, one of the, the five to 10% of the parents who are truly supportive? You know, I, this is hard because I think this is the thing that often, <laughs> 
we as humans don't like doing is really looking at themselves, right? Looking at ourselves and thinking, um, okay, what are my holdups about this? And, and the parents that I work with that are truly affirming, right? And truly uh, positive advocates for their um, LGBTQ uh, children are the ones who have done their own work about their own gender and their own sexuality. We all have experiences of gender and sexuality, right? Um, even if uh, you identify as asexual or agender, that's still an experience of, you know, having been gendered in the world. And so I think with the the parents that I work with that are on point, right, that are getting it really right, they've done that internal work of, okay, why does this feel hard for me? What is my own gender? What is my own sexuality? What are the things that, um, that I gender in the world that I don't even think about? Um, because I think until people do that work, it's really, really hard for them to recognize how deeply these things go and how deeply they affect us. I, I think that that's a, thank you for, for talking about that in such a clear way. I, I think for the, the, the people who fall into this category that you've talked about, I think is that I know who've done really well, that what, what seems to, to continue is the worry about safety. Mm, yeah. Um, and, and that, and that's not saying you shouldn't be who you are. It's, just really worried about the level of safety. Absolutely. And and I'm glad you bring up the, <laughs> yeah, I think the often people, parents will talk to me about, you know, this is just a really hard path that they're choosing and I don't want that for them. And the truth is they're on this path. <laughs> that path is not going to change whether or not they're closeted, they're out, whatever. They're already on this path but um, is it is it okay to be having those uh, feelings of um you know i love you and i love where you're going absolutely. but but i'm that, scared for you absolutely and I, I think it's what we do with that fear right because it's true that being queer being trans is not easy right it's hard and it's not hard because being queer and being trans are essentially difficult. It's hard because of the situations that we're in, the environments that we're in that are not safe. Um, so if all that energy that is geared towards um, trying to get young people to be quiet about themselves, if all of that was geared towards trying to make the world a safer place so they could <laughs> be who they are. I, I, I remember when uh, one of my sons was in probably fourth grade and um, had some kind of a Halloween um, costume. And then uh, at the last minute with uh, one other friend, uh, they dressed as a woman. I mean, these are fourth graders. And I, I remember talking to him and saying, that's really wonderful. It's great, but I just want you to know that there are uh, maybe some kids who are 
going to be upset and be angry and just make your own decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went ahead with it and it was fine. But but it, it felt that I needed just to say, um, and probably he knew that already, but yeah. 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 I, I, you know, there's, again, that with that push of, you know, I just want my kid to be safe. Well, I don't know. I feel like the better way to do that than telling them to, to be closeted, right, which we know is associated with through the roof suicidality, right? That, safe, that safety doesn't exist. Being a closeted queer trans person is not safe. There's not a, that is not a safe option. Um, but maybe learning jujitsu, right? Like if we're saying we want you to be safe, then we need to give people the tools to be safe, right? We can't focus it back on, um, we want you to be safe. So you need to be quiet. Um, it really needs to go the other direction. Um, that's, that's really really important um so i i'm not sure that the question i'm asking is the right question but um what is success for you working with with your young clients oh it is so sweet when it happens (laughs) um you know i think as this is something I think about a lot as a queer person, um, as a non-binary person. For me, I go back often to the way that we talk about um, community in in queer culture, right? That we have, we build our families. We have these families that we bring together to keep us safe. Um, because community is safety, having people around who get you is safety. And so when I think about the young people that I'm supporting growing up, getting the chance to grow up, getting the chance to be um, whatever kind of adult they want to be or that they are, that success, right? It's that this younger generation coming up and surviving. And I think people don't really understand often that the stakes are that high, that we're talking about survival. We're not talking about, um, you know, whether this, this young person gets to go to the prom with who they want to go with. That's part of it. But what we're talking about is kids surviving. We're talking about, um, the level of not just suicidal thought and suicidal suicide attempts, but completed suicides, right? We're talking about that level of safety. So the stakes are incredibly high. Um, So my goal is for kids to grow up, for them to, to grow. So the, 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 the question that I, was going to ask next. Um, I think you've answered, but um, and that would have been: Are are you able to um, significantly reduce the anxiety? And my guess is um, not in many ways because um, the anxiety comes from 
um, from real danger. So there actually is a little bit of good news in that <laughs> in that zone. So, you know, one of the things we also know is that um, when there is one accepting adult in a queer trans person's life, it reduces suicide attempts by 40%. And, so, and can that include you as that person? Absolutely. So when I'm in sessions with, with young people and they're often, you know, what we do is we're exploring what, who they are, right? That's generally what therapy is in general, right? Is exploring who we are, what built us, how we interact with the world. So when I am in sessions with a young person who feels that feeling of being in a place that is safe and you can see them relax in this way, you can see them starting to think about who their future self is going to be, what it's going to be like to be a grown up. <laughs> that is an enormously powerful thing, both for them and for myself to witness that stuff. Um, and it happens. It does happen in sessions relatively frequently. So, you know, when they're going back into these environments at home, at school, in the community that aren't necessarily safe, um, but just having those experiences of knowing, wow, that this is a queer person um, in their 30s who is talking to me about this stuff. Um, I think that can be a very useful thing. I'm curious as, uh, that your clients are from 12 to 16. Does that mean that there's that you're not allowed to continue after 16? And oh and no, that's that's just who's being referred to me. I actually I have clients as young as three and as old as uh, you know in their 60s. But the the majority of my my clients are younger. Okay. Um, yeah. But, but but you could be keeping on for years with those Absolutely. with those young people. So I I, I uh, was the, the the director or um, leader of the civil rights unit in the uh, in the main. The uh, attorney general's office uh, dealing with hate crimes, and and I I knew that if we didn't move, I knew that uh, without an intervention, there is uh, going to be a likelihood that the perpetrators are going to continue their work. And I was always aware, um, really, almost entirely everywhere was there in in me about uh, we need to make sure that we uh, deal with things, but we did deal with them quickly. Um, is there an analogy to, to how that affects you? Um, you know, you decide to go away for for two weeks. Um, 
uh, what's, how does that work for you? Yeah, it doesn't. Um, I, I, it's not a secret that um, social workers are overworked. Um, And I think one piece of that also is that the, the higher levels of care, I'm an outpatient therapist. Um, the higher, le- and, and even there, I have an enormous wait list, right? There are so many people who need these services. Um, and getting higher levels of care, like in-home supports or even, you know, inpatient stays, those are very rare, right? It's hard to get into those places. So often I am working with kids who are actively suicidal and don't have an option for a higher level of care, which is really what they need. So you're absolutely right. It is personally incredibly challenging to make that decision of, okay, I don't feel well today. Am I going to stay home and take care of myself? Or am I going to go into work where I know, you know, of the, maybe of the seven young people I'm seeing today, two of them I know to be suicidal. How do you make that, that decision? You know, it is, it's incredibly hard. Um, Stakes are high once again. The stakes are hugely high. Um, I want to switch to something that I think uh, increases the danger and the harm. Uh, just a few days ago, the main Republican Party voted on its platform. Um, it, it's not a law. It's just what they stand for. Uh, and I'm just going to read you from, uh, and for everybody listening, uh, a portion of uh, an article on this from the Bangor Daily News uh, from just uh, just the last week. Uh, talking about what um, what the Republican Party um, decided to to have in um, saying what they are standing for. And here it is. The promotion of biological genders other than male or female is treated as child sexual abuse with limited with a limited carve out for accepting, people who exhibit physical intersex traits at birth and banning reading lists or curricula that encourage students to choose their own gender, sexual orientation, or pronouns. Uh, The name main platform already included a position calling for a ban on transgender uh, girls from competing in women sports and public schools. Uh, legislators in Republican-controlled states, including Iowa, Texas, and Arizona, have recently passed those uh, some of those legislations. I, I, I assume that the, that students um, know about this. Um, I'm just curious. Probably starting there, um, are are the students? The young people you're talking about, are they, do they follow this? Absolutely. Yeah. They know this stuff and they 
if you can imagine, you know, what it means for a young person growing up, hearing this stuff being said to them, right. Or about them. Um, they know, and they're scared. And, and, and what is the, the, what is the fear? I mean, I, I, I want to be to try to sort of pinpoint what that, what that fear is. And I, in some ways, I think it's, it, there's probably some particular things and the other is um, uh, a very, very important part of, of um, the, the democracy in, in, in Maine um, the thinks that uh, you don't have the ability to be who you are. Mm-hmm. The fear, you know, the fear is that, you know, a 14-year-old who is coming into their, their being as a trans person, um, knowing that at least until they're 18, potentially past that, nobody is going to help them, right? When, it, when somebody is already suicidal and then they're hearing, uh, not only are the services that you need few and far between, now we're gonna make them illegal, right? Now we're gonna make them even less accessible. So you have no chance of being able to be your authentic self. I mean, that kills people. I don't think that's um, overstating it. I, I, I would think as part of that, um, it, it reinforces that you you simply can't take anybody at face value. You, you you're going and having a, a conversation with a with a clerk and um, in a store that uh, when when some portion of gov of uh, the political part of of a of a city or a state um, says you really don't exist. Mm-hmm. Um, that's got to create a lot of fear about who do I trust? That piece isn't new though. That piece has always been there. We've always known that we can't trust. That's why we have communities, right? Because outside of those, it is not safe. And that it, exactly the person at the grocery store, the person changing your oil, like whoever you're interacting with, um, your doctor potentially though that is not new that 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 trust is hard to come by however that piece of um you know it being so publicly demonized i think that's the piece that um again is not new but is showing up in in this kind of um in this political moment yeah uh there are so many questions, but unfortunately, not as many, not as many answers. Um, have you? 
I, I would imagine over a course of of time, um, the, you either have that somebody does take their life, um, and uh, and I I can only imagine that just even having to to think about it all the time is uh, just a very very heavy load on you and other people doing your work. Yeah, it's always in the back of your mind. It's always, you're always wondering, you know, did I make the right call? Um, did I ask all the questions that I need to? And and so you just have to ask the hard questions all of the time. Um, and and do, do you have the ability to get together with other therapists or social workers to do the same work and to try to just be able to support each other? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's one of the things that I really love about social work is that there's this very strong component of peer supervision. Um, and in my office in Waterville, we have a great group of, of clinicians. So that opportunity does exist. Um, and is kind of a mandate of social work, right? That we're we're collaborating because again, yeah, the the weight of all of that is extraordinarily heavy. Um, and um, I'm assuming that people talk about secondary traumatic stress and <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and I think especially in the pandemic where you know, the tools we have to assess people, the tools we have to support people change so drastically. Um, a lot of us have experienced uh, an enormous amount of burnout and um, what we call compassion fatigue. Uh, and so I think having these conversations, one of the reasons that I was excited to do this interview is because I think having these conversations about the situations that we're actually in the nature of the mental health field right now, it's really important for people to know um, that something needs to be done, right? We need more help. There's more need than there is support. Um, we're coming close to the, to the end of our time here. Uh, and you have can you talk about um, perhaps one instance or it may have been over a long period of time with somebody where it was a success however you would describe that um, hmm. something where you said you know uh, I'm, I'm just really so glad about what I did for some person, some yeah. young person. Yeah. It, it's hard to pin down one because I think so often those moments are, are again, kind of those times where you're sitting in a session and somebody um, is really in, is really being themselves, is, is in, in their body and, and understanding themselves in a way that maybe they haven't before that they don't usually have the space to. Um, but I think the, the ones that feel the most uh, beneficial are when, are those breakthroughs with parents, when parents 
parents are recognizing, oh, wow, I can not just accept her quotes, accept my child. I can help this person thrive. And that's actually my job, right? That's their, the job of a parent. Um, so when they get to that place of recognizing the stakes and recognizing that they can be that person for their child, that's a really beautiful moment. Um, well, it's, um, it is. It's a, well, it's a beautiful moment for us as listeners. <laughs> and thank you. Um, thank you so much for the work that you do and the colleagues who do similar work. Um, uh, we are now at the, um, at the end, and you have been listening to um, WERUFM uh, at um, 89.9 on the FM dial. But you can also listen uh, to uh, this show and all the other wonderful shows on the World, World Wide Web. I'm Steve Wessler, the host of Change Agents. My guest today has been uh, Emma Wind-Hill, uh, who works as a social worker with um, LGBTQ, um, trans, non-binary youth and uh and thank you so much for your work. You're very welcome.